Um, I'm glad we weren't recording before because my uh, me talking about how I can't hear you through my AirPods and Skype makes for really good radio. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. Podcasting, it's easy and mainstream now. So uh, naturally, there's there's got to be great tools for that, right? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, limited partners, welcome back to uh, episode two. Although we're not going to number these, we decided, because then it gets confusing. Uh, where you have seasons with regular numbers and LP episodes with numbers. Um, so welcome to another LP episode yeah. uh, that happens to be recorded on the uh, the day of Halloween, so October 31st. We'll release this next Monday. Hope everyone had a great Halloween. Uh, if you hear uh, doorbells, that means I have trick-or-treaters. So, um, Does that mean you're going to get tricked, not treated? <laughs> uh, could very well. <laughs> Ben's townhouse is going to get TP'd. <laughs> if you're driving through Seattle and you see a TP'd townhouse, that would be Ben. <laughs> yeah, that's true. David, how are you tonight? Doing good. Uh, I am here in the suburbs in Marin where we are, Jenny and I are briefly staying with her parents while we're in between moves here. Always fun. But I guess that are means you in a that, closet. Uh, <laughs> it does sort of look <laughs> like mean, I'm in a closet. No, I am in um, I'm in a bedroom, uh, but you know, built-in bookshelves. Uh, nice, listeners. We uh, so David and I, when we started doing episodes remotely, we started doing video on the Skype as well, just so that we can like see each other a little bit more and hand signal and make it feel a little bit more natural. Um, and we do sort of have this flunky artifact if you can always get a little bit of like wherever we're recording from because we don't like do this in a studio or anything. So, although soon, well, we have, we, we have a room that will soon be a studio in the new wave office, which I am super excited about. Going to get super Yeah, that's sweet. I got to come and, uh, uh, got to come and do an episode there at some point. Yeah. All right. Um, so David, I have, I have, uh, I think mentioned this a little bit, but have, uh, an idea for what I want to do on the show tonight. Um, I was talking with uh, a, a CEO at uh, of one of PSL's companies the other day, and uh, he brought up this blog post that Fred Wilson uh, wrote that's totally legendary. That's the three jobs of a CEO. Oh, classic um, Fred Wilson blog post, of which there are many. Yes. But this is yes. one that always sticks in my mind. Yes. Um, and that, that blog post talks about how there's three jobs of a CEO. There's the... Uh, um, there's, oops, sorry. I just knocked the table there. Um, there's keeping cash in the bank, there's setting and maintaining vision, and there's recruiting and retaining great talent. And it's a pretty hard line. There's a lot of these startup aphorisms that are very easy to, um, sort of say and say, you know, if you're doing anything else, um, you shouldn't be, and you should only do those three things. And of course, those three things are kind of blurry, um, and it got me thinking a lot about the sort of jobs of a CEO pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. Mm -hmm. And then it really got got me thinking about like, wow, what are all the things that are different um, pre-product market fit and post-product market fit about a company? Mm -hmm. And I thought it'd be useful to, to do an episode one, because I'm just interested in exploring and sort of debating various definitions of that and then different things that... Um, I think and and you think a company should do and shouldn't do uh, pre and post product market fit. Um, and then also, um, I just think it's an important topic to talk about early in these these uh, LP bonus shows because it is really 
Um, you know, there are many other sort of dividing lines between phases of companies, but this one is pretty, pretty important and pretty binary. Like if you had to define startups by uh, uh, the two most massively important phases that you could define them by, it really is whether which side of this line it falls on. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's uh, both of us now being uh in the seed portion of the venture ecosystem, or I guess, I guess <laughs> you Ben always have been, uh, but me now going yeah. from, uh, being more series a focused at Madrona to being a hundred percent seed focused at wave. Like this is kind of the most important question, right? Like that, um, you know, when we, we invest well before that, when companies are just getting started well before product market fit, but then like that we're asking ourselves at wave about our portfolio companies that we're talking about with them in board meetings. And, and honestly that we're finding that CEOs are asking us, like, (laughs) how do we know when we have product market fit? So this is a great episode. Well, I also think it's interesting thinking about like, what is the job of a seed investor? It's really to, uh, I mean, there's lots of work to be done after the investment, but on the picking side of things before the investment, it's really, uh, being able to spot a company that you believe is more likely to find product market fit than the investment market believes. And so it's about spotting uh, companies that are likely, even though the the companies themselves are not yet exhibiting signs (laughs) that that they will uh, uh, make something that people really, really want and be able to scale that. And so it's kind of an interesting... um, you know, it's it, like everything else in uh, early stage investing, it's game theory. Yeah. Well, actually, it may be worth a real quick diversion here, if you're up for it, um, on the a, a major change that has happened in the venture ecosystem over the last few years um, that actually I'm wondering, maybe we should do our next LP episode entirely about this. Listeners, let us know if you think this is an interesting topic you want to know more about. But briefly yeah can i let you know too yeah yeah you let me know too once i once I actually <laughs> say what i'm about to say uh after this long preamble um the investing in companies before product market fit used to be what venture capitalists did uh period what early stage vcs did but starting about 10 years ago uh and then really coming into bloom about five years ago the traditional VCs, the Sand Hill Road, quote unquote, VCs abandoned that stage of investing and they moved wholly into Series A. But Series A, uh, which used to be about investing before product market fit, now is about investing after product market fit. It's about identifying companies that have it, that have traction, and then backing them uh, and ident- identifying that early, but identifying it once it exists. Seed investing, just like you said, Ben, is now the realm of investing before product market fit. Uh, and that's what's opened up the opportunity for all these new seed funds that uh, are out there, like Wave, like PSL. Uh, and of course, we all have different models and strategies. Um, but this really is the domain that true early stage venture used to be yeah. uh, until more recently. Yeah, it's a great point. It's interesting, actually, to think about like um, how many more divisions can we have here? But uh, companies... Basically, if if a company gets its Series A funding, it sh- it is an indicator that it has product market fit. Yes. Like those things are almost synonymous at this point. And it's interesting to try and think about like what post Series A companies do you know that don't have product market fit? And it should be extremely few and far between. Yeah, it's. I mean, at this point, it's almost it's almost tautological, except in the examples where uh, an entrepreneur is just so well-known and uh, usually has been a successful founder in the past that they just raise a, you know, raise a series a right out of the gate before they've built the product. But those, those examples are very, very rare. 
Yep. Okay. So bouncing out of the investment world and into the operating world, um, we keep talking about product market fit. Lots of people who are LPs of the show, I'm sure, uh, know, um, I bet everyone knows slightly different because it is a sort of gradiented definition on a spectrum. And so, uh, let's dive in a little bit of, um, you know, what are colloquial definitions of this thing that we keep talking about? Um, and it's worth starting with, uh, uh, sort of the beginning and who coined the term, the term, not none other than Andy Ratcliffe. Indeed. So Andy, uh, David, he was one of your professors at GSB. He was, he was one of my professors at GSB, legendary, legendary figure in, in Silicon Valley, one of the co-founders of the venture capital firm Benchmark, uh, and then retired from Benchmark. Uh, and we could do a whole episode about them and the way their partnership works, but um, they are constantly having uh, all the original partners have retired and their older partners retire and then make room for new partners who come on. Um, he did that. And then he went and he started teaching at, at, at GSB at the business school at Stanford. Um, and And I believe that is when he started writing about this. Uh, now the uh, CEO of Wealthfront um, doing a lot of very interesting uh, uh, is not often you see someone that sort of successful in a venture career go back and now run an extremely successful um, company like Wealthfront. Yeah. So incredible. Uh, Andy Ratcliffe coins Chapters. the term. Yeah. Um, Sean Ellis also associated with sort of popularizing the term. Um, and what is it? It's, it's basically the clear, the, the, the clear demonstration from the market that you're selling to that they clearly want what you're selling. And that's of course squishy. So how else can we slice that? Well, one, one way that you could sort of do it, that's a little bit more data-driven numerical is that you can efficiently scale your marketing efforts and maintain positive unit economics. So it's the notion that, um, you know, you have a machine that you can pour money into and know what the multiplier on that money is as it comes out the other side. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that, and if you say, you know, I'm still uh, uh, putting money into marketing, that's sort of a test and learn. Of course, you're testing and learning on channels all the time, but, um, you know, to, to compare one channel to another. But if you're really pouring marketing dollars in in order to test and see if people like your product rather than does it come out at 10x what I put in or does it come out at 8x what I put in, mm-hmm. um, then you're still sort of pre, pre-product market fit. Yeah, and, and this is actually what we should get into more definitions of product market fit. This is certainly only one of them, but this is from a quantitative standpoint what most series A investors are really going to look at when they're evaluating your company. And and then certainly series B and later in growth stage investors, but, you know, sort of the, the canonical, you know, LTV to CAC ratios, uh, you know, what the lifetime value that you think you're going to get out of every customer you acquire over however long they're going to stay with you, however many times they're going to repeat, however many months they're going to be with you before they turn. If, if it's a, on average, if it's a SaaS product, um, what your gross, what your contribution margin is going to be uh, after your cogs, um, from those, uh, that ratio divided by how much you spent on a marketing channel to acquire that user. And basically once you go, not just like positive, like over one is, uh, you know, baseline, but, but once you're <laughs> in, ask you know, David, what is a, what is a good LTV to CAC yeah, ratio? You know, once it's you're a tricky question. in your, when you're in like two, three, four X range there, you're like, okay, I can feel pretty confident that a series A investor will look at me and say like, I have product market fit by this measure. Now, of course, this is something you will optimize over time. But if you're if you're getting significantly positive ROI uh, from an LTV to CAC ratio, that's one key measure. Yeah. 
It's a good point. And it's, it's not uncommon it's in the beginning. I'm sure you see this too. Plenty of our companies uh, that they're like way less than one when you're first starting. You know, you are oh, spending yeah. Yeah. way more money than you would ever make back on a cost. But you have to do that to start getting data. Right. And we'll we'll do a whole episode on on or probably many on um oh I woke woke the lady in a tube um the uh, uh we'll do sort of several episodes uh, I think on various parts of PSL's process over the the course of time here um, but one thing that you know we definitely see hang on a sec wow somehow she interpreted that as start playing music <laughs> we have to call up our friends on the lady A team over at Amazon. Yeah, I, I swear I didn't even say the. No, I'm trying to think what it, what the syllables were that you said. No, all right, that's done. Um, okay, so uh, in this particular case, one thing that we've definitely learned is with your initial CAC testing. Let's say it's a, a, con- a consumer startup where you're using Facebook to test, like you know, what what are what can you get an app install for, or what can you get uh, someone to pay on your website for. Um, you can reduce, you should feel fine if your uh, cost to acquire is like three, four, five X what um, um, what it needs to be. So three, four, five X the uh, lifetime value of that customer because you can do, you can sort of stack iterative improvements on top of each other to, uh, to get it an order of magnitude better, but it's really hard to do beyond that. Mm-hmm. Like when you sort of have the purest form of do people want this and you're able to throw up a, um, a, a page that clearly advertises your value prop where, you know, there's not confounding variables of you, you miss the mark on being able to communicate to people. Um, you advertise to the right market. If, if you're, you know, 15, 20, 30 times higher than you need to be on, on uh, cost to acquire, you're pretty much never going to get there on being able to make that, that cheap enough. But like you say, in these earliest stages, it's fine to have a um, inverted CAC to LTV ratio by, by a bit to start. Yep. Totally. Okay. So, um, one of my uh, <laughs> one of my partners at PSL, Mike Galgon, likes to always say there is upside surprise uh, when you find product market fit. And Mike started. This a, is a, a another uh, another potential definition of product market fit. Yes, yes. Um, and so uh, uh, he was telling me about upside surprise the other day, and I really like this framing. Um, it's basically when uh, things start happening that are surprisingly good. Uh, and normally in, in a pre-product market fit startup, what you're used to is uh, pushing the ball uphill and everything is sort of harder than you thought it was going to be. And customers take more convincing than you thought they were going to be and customers end up being worth less. This is one of those things where like suddenly people are telling their friends and you didn't ask them to or customers are willing to pay more than you thought. Like it turns out they already have a budget for this thing and um, they don't like their current vendor and you slot in nicely or uh you you thought you were going to have to work really hard to bring that one candidate into your company, but like actually they 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 email you one morning and you wake up and you're like, oh wait, this person just just wants to join, and I was really going to have to lobby them. Yep. Um, another example is on this sort of PR investor side, you're getting all this inbound. There's a you know an, a journalist at Forbes that that emails you and says, hey, you know I I use your product, I want to write about it, and you're like, what? And and when you're used, how did to you even find out about me? Pound- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you're used to a pre-product market fit startup, all of these things like never happen to you and you're feeling like, uh, uh, you know, the end is near and the switch flips at some point and there's upside surprise in everything. And I really like that, that sort of framing and, and way to think about it of like a, you'll know it when you feel it. Yep. All right. So, 
maybe I, I want to throw out one more, which actually I think, you know, when it comes down to it, um, at least with series, many series A investors, uh, the only true definition of product market fit is the same as the old um i forget i always forget the name of the old supreme court justice who was trying to define uh asked to define pornography and said he couldn't define it but he knows it when he sees it (laughs) and uh uh and that really is um uh i think how many people think about it and uh my favorite little anecdote on this um is uh uh, Airbnb after the Sequoia seed round, um, that Greg McAdoo, who was the Sequoia board member as an advisor to us at wave was telling us <clears throat> that, um, you know, they invested $600,000. Uh, I forget, I think it was in 2009, either end of 2009, end of 2009 or beginning of 2010, nine months later, uh, they were in a board meeting and he was looking at the, um, the the financials of the company and they had like one and a half million dollars in the bank account <laughs> and he was like i think it's time for us to raise a series a and go harder into marketing <laughs> yeah that's pretty wild yeah yeah it's it's like the all of these products where you sort of uh, expect to need to hire some uh, th- there are these rare companies that happen once or twice a decade or maybe a little more often than that but uh, you know so rare companies of the decade that do have product market fit as soon as they launch and you said the ubers the airbnbs the twitters where uh, you know from the very beginning it's a scaling game rather than a sort of find your market game yeah i don't think it'd be entirely accurate to say it was from the very beginning but certainly from yeah. the point sequoia invested in airbnb yeah that's true there definitely was uh uh as as brad stone and the upstarts definitely writes about there was a long uh um yeah there there was a long period of being in the woods there yeah so that's yeah. not totally fair well listeners this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on acq2 quarter Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database 
as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Cool. So should we talk about the jobs for a CEO pre and post product market fit? Yeah. I think this is a really interesting thread to pull on. Yeah. So the Fred Wilson framework uh, is is so great for a post-product market fit company. Like at, at that point, you know, it's it's cash in the bank, it's vision, and it's reta- attract and retain talent. And uh, if actually there's this amazing Aaron Levy tweet that uh, also reminded me about um, that, that I wanted to do this episode because he, he tweeted this earlier this week. So Aaron Levy, the um, CEO of Box, he's like the, he's <laughs> he's my favorite person to follow on Twitter because he is like, brilliant and witty and like very current uh and and like occasionally you'll get a weird tweet that's like you should come to the box summit you're (laughs) like what (laughs) (laughs) but you know that's only like one out of 20 so it's it's worth it um so it it is a great tweet that was starting up is the act of doing as many jobs as possible so your company can survive scaling is the act of shedding as many jobs as possible so your company can survive and I think another way to articulate that is, is pre and post post product market fit. So it, uh, those three jobs, cash in the bank, setting vision, attract and retain, attract and retain talent, uh, great set of things to be doing, um, um, you know, post PM fit, I guess we say that, to, I don't like saying that, yeah, but it's, it's long it to say product it, market fit <laughs> 150 times in this episode. Yeah. Um, but before then, I mean, the job of the CEO, I think, I've always thought about this framework that your your main job is to find product market fit and get to that place. And the the set of things you should be doing are defined by getting there. And that might include keeping cash in the bank, probably does. It might include setting vision, probably does. It, to a lesser extent, is about attacking attract and retain great talent because you're only doing that with a a handful of people rather than needing to sort of like build a scalable way to do that a lot of the time i think also as we've seen on on the show too and and we think about you know certainly you do want almost every startup is going to be hiring some people before product market fit you know maybe a first engineer or two um you know maybe like a community manager maybe something but but ideally you want a lot as much as possible of the dna that you really need on the founding team itself. Yeah. And, and really, so I always look at the job of the CEO or the job of the founder founders as you're either the head of product or the head of sales. And at some point you will transition that responsibility. But, um, when you talk about product market fit, I mean, you're either working on fitting the product to a known market or fitting the, finding the market for the product that you believe is the future. Mm -hmm. And, your job is really to be focusing on one of those things. And so that means that you're doing a a lot of stuff that you're kind of like, wow, is this really the job of a CEO? I think the, the title CEO at, in these earliest stages is really like almost a farce. Like it should be a different title because it's, it's different than the way you would think of sort of like 
company builder, leader, capital allocator, um, sort of storyteller as uh, as stages go on is really more about sort of the the, the spirit guide and finding the magic. And uh, there's a lot of different paths to sort of find that magic. But um, yeah, I, I've always I've always thought that the the sort of best uh, uh, best CEOs either opt into the product role or the sales role, um, and then uh, and then complement around themselves until until they find product market fit. Yep, and a lot of that depends on the type of company you are. If you're an enterprise company or a or a consumer company, yeah, I would say most often. Not necessarily always, but but most often with an enterprise company, the CEO is in the head of sales role, um, and yeah, um, and most uh, more often than not in a consumer company, the CEO is in the head of product role. Yeah, and of course, this entire episode, we're going to be making these like hard lines, which are not hard at all, and there's <laughs> a, every rule has an exception and many you know counter exceptions, but. Um, I th- that's not even what I meant to say. Counter exceptions or not. <laughs> anyway, there's gonna be lots of exceptions to these these rules. Indeed. Um, um, and so I, th- I think. So I want. Well, uh, okay, go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> well, uh, were you were you gonna stay on the um, CEO no, and team pre to, uh, pre product market fit? Yes. Okay. Okay. You're you're not moving to post yet. I'm not. Okay. Um, Keep going. So the other one is that uh, uh, when you look at a team that's pre-product market fit, they probably have zero or one salesperson. And if they do have a salesperson, what it really is, is a customer discovery person. So sure, you're trying to sign up people and get revenue in, in, in the bank, but um, they're, they're sort of probably compensated and incentivized differently than you would in a uh, post-product market fit sales team that's scaling. Um, and they're also, uh, it's also a little bit of a different skill set where you're approaching it more of a conversation around, Hey, we're trying this thing. Would love to see if it, if it makes sense for you, would love your feedback rather than, uh, you know, later on, which is, um, you're probably looking at the three people in market right now. Let me tell you why we're the best one. And I have this deck that clearly shows you that I've shown to 500 other people. Mm -hmm. Yep. I agree. Oh, um, yep. Uh, You want to go to post? Uh, no, no, no. I, well, I had one, one other thought. Um, and I think that's definitely what, what you just said is, is mostly applicable to B2B startups, uh, on yeah. B2C startups. Um, yeah, uh, I said you had here in our little outline and, and I totally agree. Um, it's really all about product iteration. Um, and well, product iteration and, um, customer, Seg, customer and customer segment iteration. Uh, Andy Ratcliffe mm-hmm. actually talks a lot about this, about how um, you know his view is that uh, the best um, founding teams and founders typically take a, a technology innovation and think about uh, that has happened uh, in the market, and then think about what market segment they can apply that to. Who is really gonna you know desperately want? what they can do with it. Um, and sometimes you don't get that right on the first shot. Uh, and so you take uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of companies will take what they're doing and say like, okay, we, we let's who else might want it. And I think, um, you know, mm. a great example of that Good is point. our most recent main episode in Venmo, uh, which is they were uh, taking a technology mobile 
based payments uh, and initially applied it to uh, bands and uh, uh, local bands at concerts <laughs> and then thought like, no, actually what this is, is like friends, you know, <laughs> splitting, <laughs> splitting payments. Um, and uh, even though it was the same product. Yeah, that's a great point too. Um, and actually the, uh, another person I want to give, I want to mention here and give a bunch of credit to that shaped my thinking here uh, is Sarah Imbach, who was a very early employee at PayPal and is now a prolific angel investor up in Seattle um, and really great. And I remember so clearly a lunch I had with her a number of years ago um, when I was asking her, so like what, what kind of made it, what made the early PayPal team so great? And, and her response was that what everybody in those early days at PayPal was aligned on was the need to iterate very quickly and have you know the quote unquote tight iteration loop that everybody's always talking mm. about in startups but but iterating towards what was working always so not just iterating just to iterate she was like anytime you're doing that like you can quickly get caught in a death spiral where you're just changing things and you have no idea right. what you're doing you're changing just for the sake of changing right. but what the paypal team did and what most companies that have come out of it since have this DNA as well is be constantly iterating always towards what is working the best. Like this is working great. Great. Let's do more of that. Like let's forget what's not working Mm. great. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I always wonder too, like it's always hard to balance those scenarios where you're like, this thing seems to be working, but what if that thing is counter to your strategy and you believe that's Mm going to take you to some local minima uh, for the company where you're going to peek out because you have in an effort to please com- uh, customers given up a lot of strategic uh, things or given up a lot of moat building ability. You know, what if customers tell you that they want something uh, that looks like a tools business um, <laughs> and uh, uh, but you sort of wanted to build this platform with lock in and network effects and ability to sort of have sustainable competitive advantage over time. I mean, I think the I love that framework. I think in practice, I think it's hard well, to I think make sure I'd that- actually push back a little bit here. I, you are right. And, and you definitely do have to keep that, um, that overall framing in mind as you're thinking as a CEO or founding team or, or investor or anybody uh, about these decisions. However, I'd say PayPal is like, I would say you can go a lot more a lot farther towards the extremes with this than you would think. And PayPal is a perfect example. Like they started like, we're going to beam money to back and forth between peer to peers via Palm pilots. Right. And they ended up like (laughs) we're facilitating beanie baby transactions on eBay, you know, (laughs) Um, like that really was throwing a whole lot of the strategy and, and moat out with the bathwater bathwater too, because they were wholly dependent on eBay. And ultimately as you know, we saw had to be acquired by eBay. Right. Yeah, I guess it's true that if like you are delighting customers and you're doing a lot of business because of that, there are always sort of strategic ways where you can uh, you can be tr- become entrenched and important in an industry. Yep. Uh, hmm. Again, important to keep in mind, but I just think uh, founders and board members tend to overweight the risk here versus like, hey, if there's something that people like, you should probably really scratch hard at that. Yeah, and there's a way to sort of scale it, and there's a, a big deep well there of people that want that thing. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a good point. Um, all right, one other I want to touch on here is the value of a COO and the sort of difference in pre- and post-product market fit. 
So lots of the time, uh, or lots of times, startups will title uh, the non-CEO co-founder as COO. Makes lots of sense. Um, it ends up being sort of a catch-all <laughs> in these pre-product market fit companies where a lot of time that person is head of product uh, or they end up um, doing something that's actually not a C-level position that's sort of maybe a director of operations but um, or uh, there's not that many operations. I guess where I'm going with this is the value of a COO in a later stage company that's post-product market fit ends up being that the CEO is setting vision and being mm-hmm. effectively the outside person. So, yep. st- t- so telling the story, um, doing these things, raising money, telling the story, um, attracting talent, being what the company uh, uh, looks like from the outside. And the COO is often sort of the hammer, the one that is making sure that um, the business is every single day hitting the numbers that it needs to be hitting, growing where it needs to be growing, um, managing things like HR and payroll and hiring the right the right people at the right velocity and making sure that you know you're you're on track to hit your one three and twelve month goals um, and and is really sort of keeping their head down and keeping the business running and in a pre product market fit world a lot of those jobs don't exist yet mm-hmm. and so I think it's 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 interesting sort of uh, we talked about the difference between a CEO and a COO I'm sorry a CEO pre and post a COO is dramatically different pre and post mm-hmm. off uh, as well and often requires a completely different skill set so it's very common to see someone that has a COO title um, sort of transition to a product title or transition to a um, you know uh, uh I guess any number of things and, and, um, unless they want to become uh, a COO, which is sort of a different mentality at scale. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also the COO title in early stage startups is, um, often fraught with peril, you know, and, uh, and I would say <laughs> most often actually is just a sign of like you had people that you wanted to start a company with you had one more person than you really had <laughs> roles that you needed, <laughs> but you wanted that person involved anyway. Um, right. And sometimes that can be great, um, but sometimes not. And sometimes the, that, that role is superfluous. Um, I would say the, the one potential exemption is if you are building a, uh, say, for instance, a marketplace that is a, an operationally intensive real world marketplace where you need somebody to be um, the, you know, head of product for the digital product experience, so to speak, and somebody Mm -hmm. to be in charge of going out and like acquiring supply, like in the real world. Like I'm thinking about Uber wasn't structured this way, but they quickly moved to the local GM model. Like, and the person who was the local GM in each city, at least in the early days, like their job was to go get drivers, you know, in the real world. Yep. Um, and, uh, and and while HQ was like building the app and the routing algorithms and all that. Yeah, that's a great point. Great, great point. All right. In our little doc, you have a Bezos framework. Oh, yeah. I want to make sure to throw this out there. So one yeah. of the uh, really coolest experiences I've had um, over the last few years uh, and certainly one of the many cool experiences I had while I was at Madrona. So I think you had left Madrona when this happened, but do you, uh, remember? Yeah, I had. Yeah. When, um, I think it was, gosh, was it our 25th anniversary or something like that as a firm? 
Um, and Madrona, of course, was the first investor in Amazon. And we did a private event with Jeff Bezos. Uh, and we had all of our CEOs of every company in the portfolio come. And it was like a, you know, off the record, uh, 60 minutes with Jeff. Uh, and it was completely open audience Q&A. So uh, all for the Madrona portfolio founders to just ask Jeff questions. Um, and somebody asked him some sort of flavor of not this question but like is what it, should a ceo is it still do? off the record if we're talking about <laughs> well i don't think uh, <laughs> well, but this is you know behind the behind the this is only for our lps so of course this is off the record <laughs> um uh i don't think uh jeff uh I, I don't think he's listening b if he is i don't think he would be upset with us uh uh reiterating this um and but basically the question was what you know what do you think a ceo should do and jeff just gave this great answer that i loved he said the role of, of a CEO and a leader needs to evolve over time with the company. Uh, and he's like, the way I think about this is there are four questions essentially that need to be answered in a company, how, what, who, and why, and they correspond to the various stages of the company and that he went through as in his journey as Amazon CEO. And in the beginning, the first question was how, like, I have this idea, I have this vision of, you know, Amazon, how am I and are we as a company going to create that? Um, and, uh, uh, and that was like the main focus in the beginning and, and certainly pre-product market fit. And then maybe this is the post-product market fit. Uh, he said, you know, kind of, you grow up a little bit, you've done the how, and then the most important question becomes what, like, as in things have happened and like, what are we going to do now in response to our product hitting the market? And maybe this is the, like the iteration of finding product market fit. Like we built something, we got it out there and like now right. what? We, we got, there was response. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? In Either from customers or from, you know, partners or from suppliers. Like, like there was definitely, there was, you know, uh, book publishers had a reaction to us. What do we do about that? Yep, exactly. And so then he was like, okay, then if you successfully navigate that, then maybe this is really the, the, the post product product market fit stage. Then the most important question becomes who, like who are the people who make up our company who are going to execute and build this that we know is like mm. working. Um, and he's like, mm. my role then completely shifted to like, I have to build a leadership team, um, which wasn't as important before they'd figured out like, how are we going to do this? And, and what are we going to do? Um, and so he said, and it was, what I thought was really interesting that like so, so few companies ever get to this last question, you know, Amazon is one of the very, very few, uh, Jeff was like, you know, it, at this point, like the who is set, like the senior leadership team of Amazon, like they're all incredible, truly world-class at what they do. And they've been there for so long. He was like, we all like complete each other's sentences. So I don't actually worry about the who anymore. Now I worry about mm. the why, like why <laughs> does Amazon still exist? Why are we uh, doing what we're doing? Is it right to be doing what we're doing? What does like, how do we fit into the broader, like, you know, <laughs> ecosystem and society? Uh, and like, yeah. is everybody aligned? Um, and I thought that was just so cool. Like what a great, like, um, and then he added one more at the end. He was like, I guess you could also say, the question always facing a CEO is, is, is when too, but when is always now. <laughs> and that was such an Amazon answer. <laughs> yeah, it is. There's so much there that's Amazon specific too. like the, the last part, like the leadership team has already said, it's just about why, like most companies don't grow at the pace that Amazon grew at to keep those people around, like with Andy Jassy and, um, who leads, uh, e-commerce, 
um, um, oh shoot, I'm blanking. Uh, he's now the CEO of yeah, Amazon. Well, they're, they're, uh, yeah, of they're both they're both C- CEOs, yeah. right? Like the, they 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 both run amazing enough businesses independently where they weren't going to go become CEO somewhere else. Yep. So like retention when your stock price is changing and in, in that way is is not so much a problem. Um, I also would push back that like you know why. Uh, it's, it, it's important to know your wall. You can argue why it needs to be first. Yeah, right, um, right. but, um, yeah, but anyway, you know, it's a, it was a, it was a cool, you're absolutely right. Like so many things that Amazon and Bezos say, you know, very applicable to no, Amazon and Bezos, ever, but, yeah. um, but yeah. I just thought it was a really cool framework. Yeah, there, there's one of my favorite things that's only Amazon is uh, um, he was interviewed at some financial conference last year. And one of his answers, people said, are you thinking about, you know, uh, like your quarterly reports are about to come out or are you, are you about to are oh, you thinking yeah, this about is great. reporting earnings? And he said, oh, this quarter has been done for nine months yeah. i mean I, i've known how this quarter is going to perform not you know for the last nine months my head is three quarters from now how are we going to do yep <laughs> and <laughs> it's just a, like a wow such an amazon response that kind of machinery <laughs> it's also not you know not absolutely true there's some kind of stretch there but it's a powerful uh powerful notion a good thing to aspire to yes all right. Uh, so I have uh, two things that I want to do on our uh, remaining time, which is infinite um, uh, here on the <laughs> this LP bonus show. Uh, one, I want to test um, doing a little bit of uh, VC vocab sort of every episode. I think there's interesting uh, things to sprinkle in as sort of a section in the LP show. I also, even though VC vocab is excellent alliteratively, I think it doesn't really capture what we're trying to go for here. I want to talk about sort of like VC concepts um, and and often in a jargony way. So it's not just like defining things, but it's it's talking about uh, what the connotation behind uh, behind those phrases are. So I'm going to, I'm going to say VC jargon. Um, great. LPs, let us know if you, have, if you have better, better names for any of this. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, uh, answering listener questions. So we had a great one that I want to get to. Yeah. Okay. So on VC jargon, um, I want to talk about first the concept of raising too much and, uh, I was talking with an entrepreneur the other day who was first time entrepreneur was out raising money and, um, was at the point where definitely still a seed stage company, definitely pre product market fit. Um, but sort of came and, and said, Hey, uh, you know, I think I'm thinking about raising $5 million. Um, oh, and of course, you know, of, of, of course, <laughs> right, right. It, one might say, David, your radar for credibility just went <laughs> off. Um, but you know, honestly, it, it's one of these things where like, it, it just, uh, um, it's, it's helpful to know how you're coming across going into those conversations. And it, it just, you know, five minutes of someone sort of counseling you and coaching you beforehand and saying, Hey, you're not really at the level as a company yet where it can garner this type of investment. And in, in talking about why that was, uh, I, at my first inclination was just to say, look, and this is putting my VC hat on, not my founder hat. So this is on the PSL venture side. Um, you know, look like, you're not yet at the level where you're going to be able to raise that much money. And then I thought like, what's the more, what's the better way to think about that as a company? Mm -hmm. And I think the better way to think about it is 
let's say you want to raise $5 million. Well, that means that assuming that you're selling 25% of the company, um, that your pre, I guess your post money valuation is going to be $20 million. Mm -hmm. And so then in 18 months, when you run out of cash or 12 months, when you run out of cash sometime in the next year to year and a half, you're going to want to go raise at like a two to three X step up Mm -hmm. from 20 million. So when you're going and pitching and raising $5 million, meaning uh, that the value the the pre-money valuation of your next round you want to be two to three a multiple of two to three of the post money of your previous round exactly because if you're not doing that first of all if it's less than your current round it's a down round yep Uh, it's not great if it's flat these things happen you know but they're highly dilutive and anywhere sort of less than doubling the valuation of your last round you're not going to be happy with the dilution you're taking as a founder well so if you're saying a year to a year and a half that you haven't built any value in the company right like ideally right in the interim time you want to use the capital you raise to build value absolutely and so this notion of like raising too much i think as a founder it's really helpful to think about it as okay if i'm raising five million dollars right now then 12 to 18 months from now i have to justify like a 50 million dollar post or post-money valuation. That's crazy. Like oftentimes, if you're thinking about where you are when you're when you're when you need to go raise a seed, if, if thinking just like how could I possibly in that time frame get to the point where I could reasonably go talk to the next set of investors and say we think we're a fifty million dollar company, uh, you're 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 betting on a. Uh, a miracle. I mean, you're betting on some some crazy magic event happening in the in the midterm. And so I always think like maybe maybe the reason to think about it as a founder of of okay, I'm only going to raise you know three on twelve post or something. Um, in that scenario, is okay. Do I feel good about you know a twenty five to thirty post eighteen months from now? Certainly better than a fifty to sixty. Um, it's a little bit of you know funny math there but it's uh uh i just like that way of looking at it a lot better than um am i you know am i worth investing this much money into now yeah the that's great i think there's so i completely agree one um and also related to that is um you know there are all sorts of downstreams effect downstream effects of raising um that much money like your preference stack goes up by that much meaning like uh you know if you have an MA outcome down the road where like things go sideways quote unquote <laughs> and you can't exit for you know uh more than the amount of money you've raised well guess what you don't get any money <laughs> um that all goes back to the vcs because of their preference so anyway all that too but i would also say like because i've thought about this a lot too and and we have this discussion all the time with founders at wave um just like you guys do at PSL Ventures. The bigger reason in my mind, the more important reason not to quote unquote raise too much is there's like, uh, I like to think of it as like the law of thermodynamics with startups, which is that Mm. whatever amount of money you raise, 
you will spend <laughs> uh, and you will spend yeah. it. Oh, it's like, like the uh, work expands into the time allotted. Yeah, exactly. Like money, money expands into the, yeah, or your burn rate expands into the, you'll basically go raise every 18 months, no matter how much you raise. Yep. So, <laughs> and you may think you may have the best of intentions. You may say like, no, like I'm stocking up. I think there's going to be a market downturn or whatever. Like I'm going to intend to operate for three years based on this. Like you won't like the money's going to sit there in the, your bank account. You're going to be tempted to make that extra hire. You're going to be like, oh we'll move faster with you know our third engineer instead of just two engineers before we find product market fit and like you're gonna burn that money (laughs) it's gonna happen you're gonna spend more on marketing like uh it's just uh i've seen it time and time and time again yeah and and again there are counter examples to this i know twilio is definitely one where they raised a bunch of money in a series a and left it alone for years because they got profitable quickly but um Yes, in the vast majority of cases, I agree with you, David. Yeah, especially in this pre-product market fit stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is you just want to be so careful about not not raising as if you have product market fit when you don't. Yeah, or not overextending on that because the the pro, the tough part could be if you have to go another year and a half and you still don't have it, then suddenly like. It just gets hard. It's, You're it's facing hard to some hire. Like terms people to smell, to, like yeah. you know, employees, other investors for future rounds. Like they smell that things aren't working. You know, um, and and honestly, back to VC jargon from from our first episode about the term credible. It's a huge red flag to investors if you're going out there and you're like, I need to raise a $5 million seed round because you're essentially telling us like you're going to be irresponsible with your spend, you know, (laughs) Um, like you're not going to be scrappy. You're not going to be efficient. You're going to hire four engineers when you need two, And like, you know, yeah, it's just not what you're, yeah. What you're also sort of intrinsically telling investors is if you're saying i'm not going to spend it right now it's saying i know this capital is your lp's capital i believe it is better deployed sitting in my bank account and not doing anything to put it to work than it is you investing it in another company to put it to work on behalf of your lps and that can make sense when a company has a lot of leverage. Like if a company's really hot and they're like, look, we'll we'll raise a round right now that's not very dilutive just because you want some equity in our company and you think it's worth it to get that equity. Um, but but if that should happen not, post-product market fit. That should not be right, happening pre-product right, right. market fit. Right. Wow, this ties into the theme after all. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, and this con- this continues to tie in really well um, we're going to do our first uh, uh, listener call-in question. So, listeners, if you uh, want to, uh, if you want to be on the LP bonus show, um, either shoot us a note and I will read it on the air, or um, you can uh, record a, a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at questions at acquired.fm. So, here is one from uh, uh, listener Shiv Kodak. Hey, my name is Shiv. I'm from the Bay Area. Love listening to your guys' podcast. I had a question for you on how do you think about valuations of companies? Um, especially like frameworks to think about the valuations of companies at different stages of a company's growth. It would be really interesting to hear from actually both of you on perspectives of how some founders focus too much on the valuation number and then don't consider the trade-offs with the other terms in the term sheet. So an episode on that or just a quick topic in one of the episodes would be awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. This is a fantastic, fantastic question. Um, <laughs> uh so in early it's sort stage of related startups, to what we were not, just talking about too. 
Yes, you are not going to do a discounted cash flow and get to what the valuation <laughs> of the company should be. Um, and for for uh, listeners who uh, didn't have the benefit of a finance class at some point in college, um, you are not going to uh, figure out the sum of all future cash flows and discount it based on how far away those cash flows are away. Um, so Man, you're giving me the heebie-jeebies back to my investment banking <laughs> days, Ben. <laughs> there are no earnings to speak of because they're uh, almost always that you're spending way more than you're making. Um, and uh, even doing a multiple of revenues is sort of shoddy at best. Um, so here's how it ends up happening. I can tell you from sort of the investor side. Um, the valuation of companies, at least in the earliest stages, is thinking about uh, a firm will say, we want to make this investment. We think this is a good company that we'd like to invest in. The next question to ask is, how much of this company do we want to own? Well, since a firm only takes sort of 15 to 20 bets in a portfolio, each one of those needs to have a shot at sort of going all the way to being a huge outcome. So mm -hmm. in that scenario, what you want to do is make it so that most, if not all of your bets, you own a good amount of if if it's the one that's the big winner. I mean, the the toughest thing as a firm would be if you had 15 companies and uh, the one that became a billion dollar company, you weren't able to get a big percentage of and you're participating at like one or two percent in an IPO. And you're like, mm -hmm. oh, crap, why did we, you know, that sucks. So in, in, investors will tend to say, look, we we want to own or this round should own 20 to 25 percent of that company. How much money do you need? And you look at a plan and you look at pro use of proceeds and what they're going to do with that money. And they say, OK, that seems reasonable. You need two, three million bucks to do this. Um, great. OK, well, we need to own 20 percent. So we will back into the valuation of the company. Mm -hmm. David, uh, what uh, any. Uh, any other ways that this happens in a typical scenario or is that pretty much how what your experience too? No, I would say that is, um, that is the baseline for how it gets, at least it lets, let's, let's talk about the seed stage here for sure. Um, the farther you get towards the growth end of the spectrum, the more, um, it does become driven by TAM revenue multiple, you know, yep. not DCF, but like public comps, like all that. Um, but if we're talking like in the early stages of, of company financing, um, Oh, and, and one I thing I should the, add, Oh, go for it. Oh, uh, jump in. So in the earliest stage too, um, the state of the market is definitely a thing where if you, yep. if you and investor both agree that it's going to take $12 million to get to the next milestone, it's kind of, uh, in most scenarios, it's uninvestable because, you can't say, okay, we want to own 20 to 30% of the company. Uh, so therefore, this, again, you're talking about the seed stage, the seed stage. Say. So therefore this seed stage company is worth 30 to $40 million in most scenarios. That's impossible. <laughs> um, and so, uh, what then there's two factors that come into play here there's market conditions so uh if it were five years ago it would be reasonable for uh, an early stage company to have a post money of five million dollars um if it's today it's much more reasonable for it to be in sort of the 10 12 million dollar range so there's there's this sort of mm -hmm. dynamic of what are other people paying for the same amount of risk right now um and then there is sort of the caliber of idea plus founding team 
And that is where you start to get into these scenarios where you can have the outliers of seed stage company needs to raise $12 million and have a valuation of you know $40 million um, because this thing, even though it doesn't have product market fit yet, is, uh, is, some, is a, yeah. a thing I'm willing to do. Well, um, I'm going to preview what may be our next episode if, uh, <laughs> if you guys are interested in this and talking about how the VC landscape has changed. In those scenarios, it's when the Series A firms decide to come back and invest pre-product market fit, but their fund sizes are so big now that they can write those big checks, but yeah. we'll save that for another day. Yeah. Um, okay. So the totally agree. The gloss I want to put on this is um, I would say market conditions are much more about um, about rough again at the seed stage are about typical percentage of the company that you're going to sell in total at the seed stage um so like these days roughly you should expect you're going to sell in total 20 to 25 percent of your company at the seed stage um uh when you're raising around uh in other times a few years ago i mean that was getting crazy down to like 10 to 15 percent but like i think things have cooled down a little bit um and that's going to drive valuation like you're going to raise the amount of capital you need to raise and valuation is going to be driven by like the real negotiation is going to be about how much of the company you're selling for what you need to raise um but the other thing i would say is that uh, which, which of course on the investor side could be paraphrased as uh um how how much risk am I being paid for? And sort of, mm-hmm. am I, uh, um, am I overpaying for risk if I'm only getting 5% of a company that a few years ago I yep. would have gotten 20% of? Um, and so I should stop making those investments in quote unquote, too frothy a climate. Um, or do I actually feel like I am getting paid for the risk that I'm taking? Yep. And, and part of that scale within the range of market is, is, Ben, like you were alluding to, you know, quality of founding team, size of potential market, exciting. Uh, ultimately, that's going to come down to in reality, the rubber's going to hit the road in terms of competition for the round. Yeah. Like if you've got six VCs uh, interested in leading your round and you've got term sheets from all of them, you're you're going to come in at the high end of market on valuation. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you've got one firm that is interested in leading your round, you know, you're probably going to come in you know at best mid-range and and probably in the low end in terms of valuation and of course then it gets into that question we had before about raising too much it's in a very competitive deal where the valuation goes up a lot and the amount that you're able to raise goes up a lot and your dilution goes down a lot you can get into these situations where you're like oh my god how are we ever going to raise this next round at a, at a oh at and a, actually one one quick aside i want to throw in here just because this is a mistake i see i see it so often happening founders so many founders want to make people happy and uh part of why they've been so successful in their careers thus far and people want to work with them and people like them is like people love working with them and as a result they they in the founders like make, making people happy if you are raising a hot round uh at the seed stage or any stage, and you have lots of VCs who want to come in, you're going to be really tempted and VCs are going to push you to be like, oh, we'll let everybody in and just raise more money. But like, and the easy decision is to say, oh yeah, well, I could use some more money and I do want to make you all happy. And I think you all would be good partners in the business. Let's let you all in and let's raise $5 million. And so many of these big rounds, that's how you see it happening. I would really strongly urge you to fight that temptation um, because like, the, the, like we were talking about earlier, the things that that does to your business, uh, 
are bad the preference stack the getting loose with capital not being efficient um you know part of being a founder is making really hard trade-offs and uh um it can feel like if you have a hot round especially at the seed stage like oh everything's going great i don't have to make any trade-offs but you're always making trade-offs right so counterpoint there are lots of good reasons to let uh uh more firms into the round and if people feel like they have so david i think one one of the things i meant more like growing the round size uh to do that yeah um so I, i'll still say We're growing that, the round size irresponsibly i don't necessarily disagree but i there i think there are very good reasons to to grow the round size um if you if you want to bring in two other firms and i'll tell you what the sort of my opinion why you'd want to bring in two other firms in some scenarios um you will push down the leads ownership or, or push down the both the ownership and the amount of cash the lead is putting in uh that's going to make them care less to your to your point about when we were talking the other day you're like you don't have a sort of lead advocate someone that's really like um you know the the lead investor in your company who cares a lot about you um if some if no firms have a lot of money in and no firms uh uh have large ownership percentages then the company's kind of on their own to make it happen um so one reason why you would want to grow the round is let's say you have like a big international uh, a, a, a firm overseas that has a lot of sort of customer relationships and you believe that selling onto that continent is going to be really important. Um, or let's say that there's a firm that have a, has a, a specific domain expertise um, that uh, you think is hugely additive to the round with either a set of customers or being able to recruit from um, other companies that they've backed before. Um, if there's reason to sort of grow the round size and grow the um, uh, the valuation because then even though you are um, diluting the uh, percentage ownership that the lead can have in that round, everyone's still going to feel like, gosh, I have a decent amount of money in this company and I really do have incentive to, to sort of care about it relative to the rest of the cash in my portfolio. So... Um, <laughs> I think I think you you're, you you have you have a great point that that I wholeheartedly agree with on. Uh, you still don't want to incentivize a company to get sloppy, um, but you know I, I think that would be the other side of the coin. Is is it can be useful to have uh, um, certain firms in? I think the answer is always unique to every situation, of course. <laughs> um, but I just saw I've seen it happen so many times where like firms get into sell mode because they really want in they start telling you all the great things they're going to do for you and then the round closes and then you don't find product market fit and they don't <laughs> yeah yep that's completely but, fair um the last thing i will say uh on this question of um how to think about the valuation of companies is in the long long run so at infinitum uh infinitum I don't know, a hundred years from now, if your company's item, I think it sounds right. If your company's still around, it will be valued on a multiple of cash flows and unit economics will be extremely important. And, um, you know, your business will be valued on fundamentals margins, right? It will be valued at IPO. Well, if it were 10 years ago at IPO, uh, sort of close to that. These days, you have a lot of companies that are still not profitable when they're going public, so they're they're more being based on comps than they are um, necessarily fundamentals in the business. But if you can sort of just think about like every single round you raise, and the closer you get to the maturity point of your business, the more you, the value of your company will be uh, uh, sort of exactly what the discounted cash flow says, 
and uh, you can sort of think about a blend where in the earliest stages it's zero percent fundamentals, and at the the in the furthest stages it's zero percent storytelling and mystique, um, and you sort of always have a blend every round that you raise through your IPO um, of of sort of which uh, which thing is contributing more. Yep. Indeed. So. Um, Remember when we said the bonus well, shows were going to be like two. twenty minutes? typical acquired fashion well we'll keep it shorter next time uh shiv thanks for the great question and uh thank you all for coming along for the journey with us on this little experiment no kidding no kidding um you are you are all already enormous supporters of the show so we thank you i don't know what else we could even ask uh if you feel like leaving an iTunes, well, I think that, I think we we'll, would love that. I mean, tell your friends. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think the biggest thing we can ask for, especially feedback. right now, is just feedback. Yeah. Feedback on what can we do better? The first episode on this episode. Um, you know, we are we are iterating towards success here. Yep. How can That's how can we would say. how can we provide more value? Yeah. Cool. All right, guys. We'll we'll see you next time. See you next time.